Hey everyone, well thanks so much for coming. Um, so I'm really excited to be here today to help facilitate a discussion of four students' really extraordinary new book, Down, Out, and Under Arrest, Policing uh, an Everyday Life in Skid Row. And in it, Forrest examines uh, controversies over police and community interactions uh, in L.A.'s Skid Row from a number of angles. Uh, embeds himself with police officers, Skid Row residents, as well as activists who are trying to police the police. Um, and by showing us this world from these very often very time, oftentimes very different perspectives, he's able to give us a lot more nuance and insight into issues that too often become very politically polarized. So. I'll get us started by asking Forrest some questions, get the ball rolling, but then I'm hoping uh, a little way through, we'll also open it up to questions and responses from the audience. So first, uh, Forrest, let's just start at the beginning. Um, you mentioned in the book that when you first came down to Skid Row, you weren't intending to study policing, but very quickly it seemed that it was one of the key issues the community was dealing with. So maybe just tell us a bit about how the project got started. Let's start. So, so first of all, thank you everybody for, for coming new and, and familiar and, and, uh, and friendly faces. So um, yeah, I, I, I started this project not really thinking too, too heavily about policing. I actually, I've been working um, in, in prisoners' advocacy, actually, so trying to get folks in minimum security prisons set up with as many resources as possible upon their release, right? So getting people hooked up with family members, getting people hooked up with clothing vouchers, getting people hooked up with bus tokens, um, working on resumes with, with guys who were just a few uh, weeks or a few days from being released, and there was this there was this reality that I was facing, that they were facing, um, was that they were, you know, starting from square one after their release uh, with very few resources. And um, when I had moved back to LA, I'm, I'm from Southern California, but when I had moved back, from, back to LA, I had heard about Skid Row. I had never really spent much time there, but it turned out that this has become this place that has the highest concentration of that exact population anywhere in the country, right? So people fresh out of correctional facilities. Um, and so I knew that this was a place where I could really start to think about and, and investigate and interrogate our kind of classic American narrative of the bootstrap story, right? This is, this is rock bottom, this is ground zero, this is square one, right? So if we're going to figure out how the heck people actually pull themselves up by their bootstraps, this seemed like a perfect kind of laboratory to, to, to see if people can, um, see why people can't. Um, and, and I came in very skeptical, um, I, I think as many people here in this room probably are. And the one thing that I was not expecting to, to see was just how, I guess, detrimental of a force um, policing had for folks trying to get their lives back on track. So I was, was meeting people um, and constantly seeing how, you know, a, a jaywalking ticket, the cost 174 bucks, um, a, a littering ticket, uh, an arrest for uh, sitting on the sidewalk, which is actually illegal in the city of Los Angeles. Um, how these kind of frivolous interactions with officers could actually create this downward spiral that really limited people's ability to do anything else besides kind of toil at the bottom at the bottom of our society. Um, and so I knew right then and there, like this, we, we really need to be talking about the role of policing, the role of criminal justice, the role of prisons in terms of, you know, really restricting upward mobility. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that, that I have hopefully offered, I think, a kind of nuanced kind of rendering and look at, at how this is happening, why it's begun to happen. 
um, why we've decided collectively that, that this is how we want to treat our, our most disadvantaged neighbors and our, our kind of lowliest neighbors. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that I've, that I've accomplished this. Yeah. Great. Um, so next, like, many of us are familiar with Skid Row through, say, media representations as in The Soloist or other movies or you know, maybe just cruise through um, ourselves in the car or something. But uh, one of the things you point out in the book is that historically Skid Row served different populations um, and it was arranged very differently. So maybe you could tell us about how we got to where we are today. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the historical story of Skid Row is is absolutely fascinating, and I think it's this really nice window historically in terms of how we have decided to treat folks who are down on their luck, uh, treat folks um, with mental illnesses, with addictions, with disabilities. I mean, we actually get Skid Row right about the time that Los Angeles is established. So, as soon as the railroad comes across the country, this district pops up with flophouse hotels and saloons and bars and becomes really this place where migratory labor kind of sets up um, um, in Los Angeles, right? So these are typically, right, the populations change quite a bit if you go down to Skid Row. Now, these at one point in time were, were typically white, working age men, right, waiting for a job either on the railroad or in manufacturing. Over time, um, Skid Row becomes kind of this kind of outdoor old age home um, for typically white, older, alcoholic men. Um, and this becomes kind of this kind of dilapidated place. Like these SRO hotel rooms become, right, these kind of much seedier flop houses. Um, but then, you know, right after, right after World War II, we see this influx of social policies that are lifting people um, out of poverty. And Skid Row begins to empty out. And it, it, it's kind of an empty place relatively until we see kind of the mass and deindustrialization of Southern California, right? So besides Detroit, Southern California and, and the LA region, is, is, as many people in here know, is, is one of the most thriving manufacturing hubs in the United States. We've got um, automotive, rubber, oil, and aerospace. And so when these jobs are outsourced, when these jobs um, and these factories are shut down in America, we see this incredible uh, uh, drive of this blue-collar, middle-class lifestyle. And it's, and it's hit particularly South L.A., particularly bad, right? These were jobs that, that black, middle-class workers could hold. So now, all of a sudden, we see this kind of bottoming out of, of South L.A., and we see a migration of, of poor black folks moving into, into Skid Row. Because, again, this is where uh, the most affordable housing sometimes in the city is. These are places where you can get a cheap meal. Um, these are places where there's this long history of the Salvation Army being there, of homeless shelters being there. So it really becomes this kind of community of last resort. Um, and the city actually makes an effort to turn it into a literal quarantine zone for poor people. So um, city council members are getting together and they're deciding, look, if we don't do something about homeless folks, about poor folks, about disorderly folks wandering around our own neighborhoods, uh, we're going to have some problems. So they decide that they're going to come up with this thing called the containment plan. It's literally called the containment plan in the 1970s. And they create, they, they bring a lot of social services into Skid Row and they build what they call a three block buffer zone. There's a plan to build a buffer zone. And it's supposed to keep poor people separated from the rest of downtown Los Angeles. Um, and if you open up this document, it's actually available at like the public library. There's copies in a lot of the libraries um, here in Southern California. Um, they write about these buffer zones that they're going to make 
make it really inhospitable so that when the skid row type person tries to venture out of skid row, they'll enter into the buffer zone, experience psychological discomfort, and want to turn back around and head back into skid row. So beginning in the 1970s, we actually have a literal quarantine plan for how we're going to keep these kinds of people away from downtown, which we want to develop. And so now I think it's, 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 it's under even heavier uh, kind of scrutiny. Right now that we have this kind of renaissance in downtown, um, the quarantining of these kinds of folks, um, of these kinds of problems seems to be, you know, especially on the minds of city planners, um, on the mind of the mayor, on the minds of city council members. Okay, great. Um, okay, so, so you have deindustrialization, job loss, you have this concentration of social services, we have this whole history. Um, how does it end up being such a heavily policed area? Why does the city start policing it this way? Yeah, so this is, this is one of the, the really kind of complicated and messy stories that I, that I hope that I've worked out well. Um, so, so I just, as, as by way of background, just to kind of get you into um, Skid Row. So in 2006, uh, the city decides that we are going to crack down on this neighborhood. We bring 80 additional officers into Skid Row. These are officers in a 50-block area. These are officers on horseback, on bicycle, on Segway scooters, um, and on foot, on top of the, the patrol cars that they already had. Um, in the first year alone, um, in a neighborhood that has about 12,000 people, they made 9,000 arrests and gave 12,000 citations. And these are citations for uh, you know, ashing your cigarette into the gutter, right? So, so this is, this, when, when Neil says we get this new kind of policing, this is, this is what we're talking about. Um, and so, so trying to dig into this, trying to figure out why the heck we're doing this, there's, there's a few reasons. One, um, across America, we've adopted this notion um, that by stopping and frisking pedestrians, um, we can potentially reduce larger crime rates, right? So the notion that the more kind of suspicious looking people that we can put up against the wall and get into their pockets, the more drugs we might find, the more guns we might find, uh, the more warrants we can, warrant checks we can run, the more kind of uh, criminals on the lam we can possibly find. And so across the country we've adopted uh, this new kind of model, which unfortunately is, is, is proving really bad at stopping crime. So that's kind of one thing. We kind of LA gets swept up in this current um, of this crackdown law and order stop and frisk policing. And then second, right, the businesses around downtown with this downtown renaissance are calling on the police to keep these disorderly people away from my potential customers. Um, and then, and, I, and this is one of the things that I, I think makes the book and makes my kind of treatment of this topic differently, um, is that we begin to see these typically, and I think, you know, well-meaning social service providers start calling on the police to crack down harder on people. Um, so there's, there's this, this kind of narrative and this rhetoric um, spreading throughout spraying throughout the country and it's really big in Skid Row that like these rehabilitative organizations are really afraid of losing clients. Right? If you think about it, every client that walks through the door of, a, of one of these nonprofit organizations, that's a, that's a dollar. That's money. Right? And organizational longevity depends on me as a nonprofit organization making sure that I continually have clients. Right? So now I've got this real serious incentive right, to get the police to one, 
make sure that my people who are kind of um, leaking out of my services want to get back into my services, um, and that all the temptations, as they refer to it in Skid Row, that exist on the sidewalk, old drinking buddies, drug dealers, um, you know, uh, romantic relationships that might spring up between people, all the temptations that pull people out of services, these are no longer something that we can tolerate. So it turns out those this new policing policy that happened in 2006 was actually um, supported in, in some part authored by uh, a lot of homeless shelters, um, a lot of social service organizations. So what we see, what we get is this kind of like perfect storm for wanting to crack down on poor folks. We have a kind of larger political discourse that says all these homeless folks walking around, if we continue letting them walk around, the neighborhood's going to deteriorate, we're going to get more crime. We get a downtown renaissance where uh, poor folks are, are a liability to profits. And then third, we get this new support for policing uh, by social service organizations who want to stop the kind of bleeding of clients out of their doors. Okay. And, and how has this new style of policing affected individual people and then the community at large? Oh, man. Um, yeah, so I spent a lot of time in the book really trying to get into to, to some really deep narrative detail, you know, day by day, how people's lives are affected by policing. I mean, I think that we have great statistics on these things. Um, I think that those statistics are clearly not doing a very good job at, at posing a critique of what I think is a really harmful form of social control. And so I thought, this is a new way we haven't necessarily seen on a day-to-day -day basis and walked through uh, a month or a year in the life of someone dealing with this stuff. So just materially, right? So there's this downward spiral that happens, especially for, for folks living on, say, 200 bucks, 500 bucks a month. Um, when, say, you get a ticket, right? So, um, you know, this was a typical process. So in, so in California, it's actually, most of you, I, I'm sure don't know this, when the red hand starts blinking, you actually, it's illegal to step into the crosswalk, right? This is a crosswalk violation. It's a $174 fine, right? We all do it every single day. No one ever told me this until I went down to Skid Row. In one of my first days, I began to like step off the sidewalk and this guy behind me like grabs my shirt and pulls me back as a cop drives by. And he's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is a big deal down here. You can't just like step off. Don't you see the hand blinking? Um, and so what would often happen is you know, someone is not paying attention or they they have a cane or they have a walker um, or they're in a wheelchair, they're not getting across the crosswalk fast enough um, and they get a ticket for $174. Um, for a lot of people, this is, you know, almost all the income they're making for the month, um, maybe half of the income they're making for the month and they don't pay it. Uh, the fine for one of these can become 500 or more dollars for that single thing um, and they'll get uh, a warrant, sometimes a bench warrant, right? So now they have to report um, and oftentimes what will happen is these, these fines will just continue to spiral and continue to spiral and continue to spiral and they'll find themselves suddenly serving, you know, one day, two day, week long jail sentences. Um, so, so we've got this incredible material hardship that this causes. Um, and then there's this other kind of more diffuse effects where this kind of policing seriously erodes community cohesion. Um, so when you've got police circling all the time, um, you start to have to develop these ways to try to avoid policing. And I talk about this a lot in the book. I, I, I call it cop wisdom. So it's like people become wise to police officer strategies. They start to kind of 
see the world through the eyes of police to try and anticipate, like, how is a cop going to see me right now? Like, what I'm wearing, who I'm standing next to, do I look like someone who should be put up against the wall and put into handcuffs and searched? Um, and they learn very quickly that there's certain people that you don't want to be standing next to, that you don't want anywhere near you, right? So a homeless person sitting on the sidewalk, um, they're in violation of 4118D. It's a misdemeanor. You can be put into handcuffs and taken down to the station for sitting on the sidewalk. I definitely don't want him around. Um, I don't want congregating people on the sidewalk because officers might think that this is a drug deal. I don't want a woman standing next to me because this is a place where officers assume that women are engaged in prostitution. I certainly don't want to be friendly with her and flirting with her because now I'm going to be, you know, suspected of soliciting, right? So they learn that there are all these people that I need to get the heck away from. And if they won't get away from me, then I need to take it into my own hands to get folks away from me. So I, so I hung out. One of the chapters I write about um, this group of, of street vendors who um, hawk like uh, bootleg DVDs and CDs. And I hung out with these guys for a few years, helped them tend to their shops. And they would constantly kind of gang up and run these types of people off, right? So I would watch them like pick up homeless guys, um, pick them up as a group. He's kicking and flailing and deposit him, you know, on the side of a warehouse building up the street, right? Because they know as long as he is sitting in front of their little shops where they're, where they're trying to sell DVDs, the cops are going to stop. Um, I saw a group of guys get into a fight because one of the guys brought his wife to the corner to kind of help him sell um, DVDs and stuff. And so the police had stopped them earlier that week or, or a week prior, you know, and had come up to her and been like, oh, are you working? And she was like, no, this is, you know, this is my husband. We're hanging out. And he was like, no, prove it. Prove that you have the same last name. You need to prove to me that you're not working. They produced their IDs, they showed him that there was no prostitution involved, and he still gave them tickets. And then he turned to everybody else and gave them tickets for blocking the sidewalk. Right? So people know that, like, look, we have to do everything in our power to make sure the police don't stop. And a lot of times that means lashing out at the people who attract police attention. Um, and if you're not able to do that, then it's like stay the heck off the streets. right? Stay the heck off the streets. Stay away from certain services. Um, stay away from people giving out charity. So uh, the city right now is trying really hard to make it illegal to hand out any donations in money or in kind on Skid Row. So within this 50 blocks, they want to make it, I believe, a misdemeanor to hand out a sandwich to someone, right? So if you go down, you will be arrested for handing out oatmeal or coffee or a sandwich, um, right? So now you've got people who are scared to death of, of being near you and your church group when they come down to hand you sandwiches. So you can imagine the kind of like anxiety, fear, and just total cognitive energy that goes into living in a neighborhood where at any given time you might be stopped, right? And, I, and I, when I talk to my students about this stuff, I talk to them about, you know, when you are on your way to campus, when you're on your way to my class, what are you thinking about? You know, you're thinking about what you're going to do this weekend, the cute person in your class, like you're thinking about your chemistry exam, you're thinking about, um, you know, some problem you're having with your roommate. Now imagine if instead of being allowed to think about those things, at every step of the way, it was, oh, where's an officer? How's the officer going to view this person? How are they going to view me now? Okay, I just crossed the street. Did I, did I violate any laws while I was doing that? Are they going to be concerned about the way I look, the way I'm walking, the way I'm talking? And I think that, like, 
Yeah, there's, it's, I, think it's, I think it's a different way to think about inequality in America. For me, that seems like a really oppressive way to um, treat a certain group of folks, right? Like, that's a different way that America is unequal, right? Not just in wealth or in income, but in literally what I'm allowed to think about as I walk down the street. Like, we've robbed people of the ability to even, like, daydream, Right, that like because I'm so concerned with policing, um, yeah. So I think that that these are stories that like you can't get unless you're there for a long time, actually talking Absolutely. to folks. Absolutely. Um, so, so tell us. I, I want you to tell us a bit about about what the police think of this, because um, it sounds like an incredibly cruel way of organizing. Uh, social control in this neighborhood, but I think one of the most interesting and counterintuitive points you make here is that a lot of the police think that they're helping people, right? And, you know, you make a really interesting point that we think in our era of mass incarceration, we've moved away from any sort of rehabilitative mindset in uh, criminal justice, but what you point out is that a lot of these police think that through tough love, they're helping people on the road to recovery. Um, and you term this therapeutic policing, and I'm wondering if you could maybe break that down because, you know, at face value, therapeutic policing sounds pretty good, but as you show, it's actually, there's a, really a lot of problematic stuff happening. So Yeah, so I've, I've kind of coined this term therapeutic policing to um, really capture the kind of why of, of, of these tickets and these arrests. Um, and it's this notion that, it rests on this notion that if we can make poverty, homelessness, addiction, unemployment as uncomfortable as physically possible, that people will someday wake up and choose, look, I'm no longer going to be this way, right? So um, this example about wanting to uh, make it illegal to hand out sandwiches. Um, when I speak with officers, officers really see this as you know, benefiting folks in Skid Row. And their logic goes something like this, that you know, if people can no longer survive Physically, if they can, if they're starving, they are going to have to go into services, uh, rethink their lives, right? So, if, if we can eliminate the possibility to even survive physically on the street by arresting the church group that comes down here to give out oatmeal, then perhaps this person is going to follow their hunger, right, into a different course of action. Um, they, they, they often talk about um, stopping addiction by not allowing people to, to stop long enough um, to consume drugs. So, so one of the officers that I spoke with about this had this, this great quote that I include in the book where he says, you know, it's pretty hard to spark your crack pipe while you're busy walking. Right? So he sees it as his, his duty to keep like, this constant movement through the neighborhood. That it's like, move along, keep walking. If we wake people up and stop them from sitting on the street, then they can't recuperate from a hangover. And then the next time they have the bottle in their hand, they're going to say, hey, I can't recuperate from a hangover because the officer is going to get me. I better not take this drink. The problem is, right, that, like, that's not the way addiction works. That's not the way mental health works. Um, right? and, and the kind of eliminating sandwiches they see this as a particularly um, efficient way to, to actually get to folks with serious mental illnesses, right? That they say, even somebody with, with a serious mental illness has these kinds of biological drives that they need to eat, right? So even if they're, like, not coherent, they're, they're going to follow their hunger, right, into, into services, into, like, better life choices. Yeah. 
Um, Did you want to read this, this selection? Yeah, it's what, it's 91? 91, yeah, this is a selection um, in a conversation with uh, an LAPD officer who's sort of explaining yeah. it from his perspective. So I think this, this yeah, th I think this really captures, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I came in when I was, when I was seeing the damage this kind of stuff was doing to people's lives, I think it's really easy for us to demonize officers. Um, I think that it's a really easy step. It's not a leap to um, think of, of these officers doing these things as these kind of like evil, kind of stormtrooper-esque people walking down the street. They wake up in the morning, they want to like, you know, make poor people's lives and black and brown people's lives worse. Um, and as I got to know police, I was like, wow, like these are people who wake up in the morning like wanting to make the world a better place, um, who want to like rescue victims and get the bad guys and, you know, be a, a knight in shining armor. And so the question for me became, and I think that this is like actually a really important question, is how is it that well-meaning people do some of the most repressive actions right in this country and I think that that for me was both like a, a great sociological question and just like a, a good question to ask about about how, how bad stuff happens and so I, so I meet this officer who I refer to um, as Officer Manuel Rodriguez or Manny and and we become quick friends we kind of bond over the fact um, you know he, he comes from a military family my, my younger brother um, was just trying to get out of the Marines at the time and so we kind of bonded over this um, and I'll, I'll just kind of read a couple paragraphs. I think it really captures, you know, the perspective of officers. So in what would become the first of our near-weekly near happy hours, Manny and I sat in the dark bar of a Mexican restaurant in the Echo Park neighborhood, three miles north of Skid Row. As usual, Manny dominated the conversation. He seemed as eager to unload pent-up frustration as I was to lend an ear and take notes. For nearly 20 minutes, Manny railed against the VA for failing to adequately dispense veterans' benefits. Instead of taking care of them, he complained, they're sending them all down here to fend for themselves, telling them, we can't do anything for for you. It's bullshit. These are the guys that need the most help. They fought for this country. They've got PTSD. They're all messed up. They need serious counseling, jobs too, and the VA just turns their back. He squeezed a lime wedge into his bottle of Corona as he spoke. Every day I drive down there and I see this one dude limping on a cane because of some IED in Fallujah and I'm like, that could have been me. I'm so lucky. You got other guys that can't sleep because they have nightmares. They don't trust themselves around their families. They end up down there self-medicating. He held up his beer as he said these words, toasting himself, indicating that perhaps he too had struggled with readjustment to civilian life. So what's the solution, I asked, as Manny took another long swig. He let out a sigh and put the bottle back down on the bar. The better question is, who else is helping these guys? We get a lot of flack, but the truth is we're the only ones doing anything about it. And his tone grew agitated. Everybody wants to talk about support our troops and all that, but I don't see them down here dealing with, with, with what I see every day. We are the ones pulling them out of the gutter and getting them help. We are the ones making sure they don't get stuck down there. If it was up to some people, we would just leave these guys alone and let them drink themselves to death. They say we shouldn't arrest them and that they're stumbling out on the street getting hit by... They say we shouldn't arrest them even though they're stumbling out into the street getting hit by cars. It shows how out of, a touch, out of touch with reality some people are. That's my brother out there. Not my real brother like yours. But when you go in, you become brothers, you know? I can't not help him out. I swore an oath. It takes another thoughtful sip. It's like this. I'm not a therapist. I don't work for the Department of Housing. I'm not DPSS. I'm a cop. I'm just doing what I can. 
At least when I arrest a guy, I can get him into the system. At this point, that's a victory. And once he's there, he's going to sober up. He's going to get a chance to clear his head. He's going to have a roof and a bed. He can hit the reset button. And from there, he can get into a program at one of the missions. Now, is it perfect? No, of course not. But that's what we're going to have to do until those suits in Washington decide to take care of the men and women that gave their lives for this country. And it was in, it was in like these moments, right, where, where, where these officers are, they're like, we have no other option. You know, we've hollowed out the welfare, you know, as, as Manny points out, we've hollowed out the welfare state. We've decided we're not going to prioritize affordable housing. We're not going to prioritize mental health. We're not going to prioritize health care. We're not going to prioritize jobs with living wages. We're not going to prioritize a whole set of, like, social protections. And he says, we've essentially hollowed out that welfare state, and now they've stuck it all on me. They're asking me to deal with unemployment, me, me to deal with addiction, me to deal with mental health, which are not crime issues. But now I have to deal with it, and I have to deal with it with the only tools I've got. I've got a baton, I've got a handgun, I've got a taser. Um, I've got handcuffs. You know, so when I encounter somebody who seems like they need help, I'm going to help them however I can. Right? So you know, I've got a hammer, I have to treat everything like a nail. Um, and so this is really the kind of crux of therapeutic policing, that we've all decided, hey, let the police deal with them. Right? We're not willing to, to vote in policies or vote in people that are saying anything different. Like, ah, oh, let the police deal with it. They'll, they'll solve it. They'll take care of it. Great. Um, so thus far, a pretty depressing story. But there's also a really... It's <laughs> also a very inspiring one here um, of community members who, who, you know, in their cop wisdom, don't just find ways to evade and, you know, develop this trust with their neighbors, but yeah. really come together... Um, you know, with an activist group, um, you describe a community watch. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yeah. these folks who were who were trying to um, resist. Yeah. So this is I, so so I conclude the book with a, with a chapter on this organization that I am incredibly fond of, called Los Angeles Community Action Network, um, and they're a group of of low income residents and homeless folks who have decided that they've had enough, that they've, they've decided that they've had enough of cycling through the criminal justice system and suffering abuses at the hands of police. Um, and, and one day, uh, I think it was around maybe like 2004, 2006, they decided they were going to track the police with video cameras and walk around Skid Row and videotape like every police interaction. Right? So because Skid Row is pretty dense, they would literally sometimes just kind of like wait outside of the police station for a particularly problematic officer and like follow him throughout his entire shift, just kind of like walking behind, videotaping every single one. And they generated thousands and thousands uh, of hours of videotape and they began to use and I write about how they use all that cognitive energy in terms of like trying to anticipate policing they had become so good that some of them could literally walk up on a scene and kind of narrate exactly how it had been policed in the last few minutes right so we'd walk up and they'd, they'd see if there's a person on the streets, depending on what kind of activity we have, how many women are there, they could say, ah, there was a drug bust here, you know, 10 minutes ago, you know, this is what happened, they arrested this person, they didn't arrest that person. Um, and they would literally kind of set up these reverse stings, right, and kind of like blend into groups with their cameras at the ready so when police showed up to write to unconstitutionally throw people into handcuffs and search them they could get this all they could get this all on tape and and recently um they've won 
these really monumental federal lawsuits against the LAPD and against the city of Los Angeles. So one of the things um, that the, the LAPD and the city had been doing um, was this massive confiscation, uh, property confiscation policy. So again, in this idea of let's make this place as uncomfortable as possible, they had taken to literally grabbing things out of people's hands and throwing them away to make the neighborhood really uncomfortable. So what they would do, they kind of quickly in a kind of fly-by-night fashion um, put a kind of like a dump truck, flatbed truck at the end of a street. On the other end of the street, they would get a skip loader kind of tractor at the ready. They'd have uh, BSS workers, Bureau of Streets and Sanitation workers, walk down the curb with uh, rakes and reach over and sometimes rake possessions like out of people's hands. Um, so suitcases, tents, crates, and rake them into the street. And once they were in the street, they would declare them abandoned property. And when people would try and run out into the street to get their stuff, an officer who was walking by would threaten them with arrest. Right? So if you pick this up, we are going to arrest you. That's abandoned property, leave it alone. Um, and so then people would be cleared back and then they'd drive the skip loader along the street, pick up all the stuff, dump it into the truck, and then to the other side of Skid Row and set this up on the other side. Um, and this group collected this amazing footage of these practices and took this to federal court and actually won um, a federal injunction that prohibits the LAPD from engaging in this practice anymore. And so the federal injunction now stands. Um, so, so yeah, so I think it's, it was important to, to conclude the book showing how, you know, folks are on the ground resisting this stuff. I think one of the things I'm really trying to do is show Right, the kind of agency that people have. That yes, people are suffering under um, the hand of really repressive policing, but but it doesn't mean that they're completely hapless victims. Right, that like they still have uh, power if they're able to build community, um, uh, build organizations, and kind of come together um, and do some kind of resistive politics. Right. Right. Um, all right. And so, and so, where do we go from here? What's, <laughs> what's the what's the solution? Yeah. Um, yeah, so as a sociologist, this is like not my this is like not my strong suit. I'm really good at pointing out like what is going wrong, um, but but I think that the, that that the analysis does point to um, you know some 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 kind of piecemeal but also larger larger kind of recommendations and policy solutions. I think first we have to really come to grips with the fact um, that policing can actually do more damage um, than it than it's it then help right that like the, this particular cure to this problem may actually create more more problems um, than it than it than it cures um, so I, I mean I think we have to pull back one from from policies you know that that have officers going out there putting people up against the wall and searching their pockets we found that um, it's not really good at stopping crime and I think my book shows that it actually unleashes these community level processes of eroding trust and building animosity among a population that's already marginalized. Um, and so I think that the evidence shows that like, one, we have to just stop doing this. I think it means pressing um, our elected officials to back off of policing, right? This is not backed in social science, this, this new turn that we have towards law and order. Um, and then I think we have to do things both on the front end and the kind of back end in terms of 
making Skid Row not necessarily exist in the way that it that it does. And I think on the front end, it means you know reviving a social safety net. Um, you know, if there was one thing that I realized, you know, doing this work was that actually folks on Skid Row um, don't look that much different from like many of my friends and family. Right? That the only thing that se- some of my family is here, by the way. Um, uh, the only thing that separates right. Um, me, right, sitting here and someone, you know, I don't know, five miles down the road um, on Fifth Street, right, is the fact that when I have these things happen in my life, um, negative events happen in my life, I have this amazingly dense social support network, right? So I know that if I lose my job, if I develop an addiction, um, if, if I'm arrested and incarcerated, if, if I am skateboarding and hit my head and lose cognitive capabilities, that like, I'm probably going to be okay, right? That I have this kind of built-in social support system, um, that I'm gonna be okay, but for most of the folks that I encountered throughout these five years that I spent in Skid Row, the only difference was that they just didn't have this, right? They were in an accident on the 101 and maxed out their health insurance and got addicted to opiates, and so now they're there, right? Um, you know, older gentleman who, an older gentleman who, who like slipped into a coma and his family didn't know what really to do, and they kind of, fractured and went their own ways and he woke up and was without money, without family um, and made his way to Skid Row. And so I think that it's it's really thinking long and hard and pressing um, elected officials to, to really reinstate the kinds of social safety nets necessary so that when those people, right, have those life events, right, they're not as detrimental to their lives. And then I think that there are things we can do, so that's kind of front end, build the social safety net so we don't have folks ending up in that situation, and then, you know, taking care of the folks that are there right now. Um, I think that there are some, some really good programs out there. I know Neil, Neil works in this field a bunch, and we, we go back and forth about whether this particular policy um, is the magic bullet, but, um, you know, there, there, are, there are housing first and, and harm reduction and permanent supportive housing options out there. But the evidence is, is pretty good to, to them, them working. And so essentially the notion is this, that um, as opposed to our current model, which is, hey, if you can stay sober for six months or if you can demonstrate some kind of um, uh, mental healthiness for a certain amount of time, then maybe we'll give you a little something. Maybe we'll put you on a waiting list for you know, some housing. It'll be temporary housing. As long as you continue to prove to us that you're a moral, worthy citizen, we'll keep giving you little nibbles of things. So that's what we're doing now. But you know, this housing first model says, look, the first thing people need is to feel stable and secure and comfortable. Let's meet them where they are. Let's put a roof over people's heads. Let's make sure their basic social needs are taken care of. And then let's build wraparound services services around them, right? To get people back into the labor force, to get people stabilized if they have mental disabilities, to get people um, rehabilitated if they have addictions. And, and it turns out, um, you know, some organizations in Skid Row have been experimenting with this. The effectiveness is not only proven to be better, but the, the, the costs are, are far better, right? So if we continue with what we're doing right now, according to the most recent kind of economic analysis, if we continue what we're doing right now, we Angelinos are paying $3,000 a month per person that is homeless um, 
in this county, right? So 3,000 bucks a month for everybody that's homeless. There's about, I don't know, 7,000 people homeless in the 50 blocks of Skid Row, right? And, and you know, across LA County, it's far more. Now, if we move to one of these other models, housing first, permanent supportive housing, we take that $3,000 a month per person down to $600 per month per person, right? And so, I mean, I think it just makes financial sense. If nothing else, if I, if I can't appeal to someone's like kind of moral compass, then at least like I can appeal to your checkbook, right? That like, what would you rather pay? 3,000 bucks a month as a taxpayer or 600 bucks a month as a taxpayer? So I think that that kind of back end, taking care of people that are there now is a kind of third prong of, mm. of that, that solution. Great. Great, thanks Forrest. Uh, we'll open this up for questions now. Yeah, over there. First of all, hey I just there. want to say thank you very much for writing this book. I live in downtown LA and I feel more and more people need to know about it. I have a couple, thank you. maybe about two or three questions. My first question is, are you aware of the downtown women's center now? Yes, I love the downtown women's yes. center. Um, uh, yes. I think that's something <laughs> that you need to preach about so that more and more people see about it. They're here, and just for people that don't know. Please, yeah, yeah, downtown, please tell everyone. The downtown women's center is an all-encompassing place that welcomes women there. They can come for all services. They can come for two meals a day and one hearty meal. Mm -hmm. So it starts at six, it ends at two. They can go for every single service. They can go walk in there and go for psychiatric care. They can get a mammogram, and they can um, get their breast examined, everything. They go in there for food. They go in there for toiletries, and people donate. It's self-sufficient. Jam care. Um, and they can go in there for drug addiction, then we can go to a drug addiction place. And if there's a woman that is a veteran, she will go get placed to another place. They have housing. They have 114 places there that you go, and 114 women stay in little rooms. Their cure rate and success rate for today is 95% because everything is all encompassing. Jan Perry is the one who got the second one. So we need more and more places like that. I also want to say thank you for making me more aware. I am going to my councilman, Councilman Wazar. Yes, yes. He's an important part of the story. Yeah. And I think everybody needs to go to their councilman and please speak up because he will listen. He's given me garbage cans that I wanted on Alvarado. Alvarado and Wilson. Yeah. One, he gave five, and then <laughs> and he gave me something else. So, That's great. Um, so as yeah. a person, I feel that everybody really needs to speak up about it. And he even sent a letter or give clothes. I don't believe in my other question to you is, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, please, please, no. This is important stuff. Um, what, is the, how, what is the effect? And I see it every day, and it scares me to death, the mm. spice. Yeah, yeah. Is there going to be a cure, or are they just going to die? Wow, wow. Because yeah. I see them, and it's a synthetic drug. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, unfortunately, I don't think I'm the, the mm -hmm. best person to answer the question about spice. I don't, I'm, you're, you're more in the, in the health side of, of things, and there might be some folks here. So spice is, a, I guess it was developed as a kind of synthetic marijuana that kind of skirts the laws around marijuana, right? So it, it, I think, initially had, and I think, I guess, still has a lot of allure because it's like, well, you know, we're, yeah, it's, it's really cheap, but it's, it's getting people sick. It's getting people sick and people are dying. And particularly in Skid Row, there's been this, yeah. Two weeks ago, I died 
Yeah, so it's 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 kind of become in the neighbor. I mean, in the neighborhood, it's become kind of an epidemic in terms of. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think so. I have a kind of. I have an, an argument about this. I, I, I think a lot of people push push against me. Um, I don't think that Skid Row as a place is going anywhere. Um, I think that there's there's millions and millions of dollars. This is this is my contention. I think people can 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 argue with this all they want, despite the fact that there's incredible kind of redevelopment and gentrification going on just on the other side of Main Street. I mean, there's millions and millions of dollars in new construction and people invested in you know multi-story block-long organizations that have really the you know if you look on the boards of these places are are some pretty powerful people so i don't think infrastructurally i don't see skid row going anywhere um i think skid row avoided the fate of many skid rows the bowery in new york west madison um in chicago of, of being bulldozed in the name of redevelopment i think that there's that I think these buildings are there to stay. And I, I know some of my colleagues who kind of go back and forth, they think that gentrification is going to roll over everything. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so as much. But I, but I do want to, um, yeah, just, like, just, just echo what you said about the Downtown Women's Center. I think that we have done, there's this real gendered component to um, the helping professions and services that I think we've done a really good job um, rolling out services for men that, you know, if, if Downtown Women's Center came about precisely because, you know, we have we had this huge influx of women and children and families in Skid Row, but all the services at the time were directed towards men, right? And, and, and I think that we're dealing with two very different sets of, sets of issues that, you know, a lot of these organizations just simply could not take care of. So I think Downtown Women's Center and some other organizations are, are Absolutely instrumental in, in in changing things. Great. I'm sorry. We had one over here. Can, we can we can maybe circle back. Circle yeah. back. Uh, you mentioned that I guess in Chicago and New York the uh, the skid rows were sort of urban redevelopment out of existence. Uh, how does the problem of homelessness play itself out differentially in cities that still have skid rows and those that don't? Yeah. So I mean, so certainly the the in, in terms of the Bowery and in terms of Chicago, we see a far more dispersal. I think spatially, it's hard besides the Tenderloin, besides um, uh, Vancouver's downtown east side, we don't necessarily see the kind of concentration that we see now. So a lot of other cities have taken the exact opposite approach that the city of LA has taken. The city of LA has said, hey, take all the services across the county, as many as we can. Let's dump them in this 50, 50 block area. I think other cities have gone the absolute opposite way. Right at that moment, in the 70s, when they decided we're going to redevelop our skid rows. Right? So in the Bowery, in New York, yeah, there's a Whole Foods there, right? Where uh, where uh, a home, one of their biggest homeless shelters used to be, which is just you know a perfect kind of image of the way these things go. But they they they've completely um, tried to disperse and and but there's this this other component that's really interesting, which is that. Um, most of the, a lot of the shelters in big cities across the United States are, are public city shelters, right? So the city of New York has like New York City shelters. The shelter system in Los Angeles has always been a private endeavor, which makes it much harder, right, for any kind of governmental kind of oversight 
and kind of re-legislation, right? So now we're dealing with market actors who have, you know, money invested in buildings, money invested in client streams, money invested in being in particular places at particular times. And so I think that that makes it even harder to kind of diffuse or disperse um, some of these services elsewhere. Um, yeah, and I think also leads to... Do you think it's or not? I mean, I, I, I think there's, there's pros and cons. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty nice for a lot of folks to be able to kind of have Skid Row as a kind of one-stop shop, right? That there are caseworkers from different programs um, that, you know, you can go across the street to, you know, that are right across from the affordable housing unit that you're living in. You know, in places like New York, this might include, you know, a trek across the city to different services. Um, but then at this, on the flip side of that, we also get all of the kind of negatives that come along with concentrating poverty in such a, in such a stark way. So I don't, I mean... I don't think I'm, I'm ready to come down either way. I think they both offer their challenges, but I mean, I think we have to be up for the kind of spatially um, specific, you know, location specific challenges that are, that are arising, yeah. Um, you know, we have Proposition HHH now that's going to be on the ballot this November, and it's the, it's the, ba- it's the ballot measure for affordable housing, and it's supposed to fund 10,000 units of Permanent housing, permanent yeah. supportive housing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the this is the is it the eight eight million? Is that the ten million? That's the ten million. Yeah. And, and so the people are not sure mm-hmm. if um, if we have the political will to pass it. Right. Um, right. They say that because it, it has to pass by two thirds, mm-hmm. and the concern is that it's not going to be found because this is supposed to be the fattest ballot ever. Yeah. And it's yeah. Like on the last page or something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? Do you think that there's enough political will and also public education to pass something like this now? Or do you think we're going to have to wait even longer? Oh, man. Um, I'm, I don't I, I think having dealt with um, elected officials in, in Los Angeles... Um, and across the state on on this particular issue, I am sadly skeptical about the political will being there. Um, but it's I mean it's not to say that a a, a real organizing effort couldn't get this done. Um, I, yes, yes, no, no. It's 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 absolutely important. No, I mean I think we can do it. We can do it. But it's you know it's gonna I think it's gonna take more work than 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 what's going on now. I I don't think that we can. I don't. I mean, Villaraigosa and and Garcetti. I mean, I think that many times we've made the mistake that folks were going to honor their promises. Um, that that you know the the kind of large influx of money that's going to cure all of our problems. You know, they've they've often not materialized. Um, so I think finding more ways to hold these promises, holding their feet to the fire about about maintaining these promises is is totally necessary. I mean, I think you know I. I write about this organization, Los Angeles Community Action Network, I think that they in L.A. are, are doing some really fantastic jobs, a uh, really fantastic job holding local elected officials' feet to the fire in terms of, of keeping their promises. And they've been really instrumental in downtown and, you know, having these kinds of one-for-one type arrangements um, uh, passed uh, and then moratoriums on... on Destroying affordable housing, you know, in name of kind of like the new fancy loft, you know, going up in like the former Flophouse Hotel. Yeah, so this is really exciting to see sociology representatives. <laughs> uh, and I have 
Please, please. 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 <laughs> this guy. Um, so I was thinking a lot about sort of a cultural toolkit on kind of a national level, and because which to translate you guys is basically like what you sort of use to solve problems as you go about your day. Right? Mm -hmm. So you sort of have like lots of different cultural tools that you kind of like fix things with, and so um, you know you might uh, run into something and then like. Stereotypically, like the easiest thing is like if you train to, to be a boxer a lot, you might actually think I should fight, right? But if you train mediation, you would think it comes with mediation. And you right. train more in a certain situation will activate um, a certain element of that culture more than another one. But you actually have both simultaneously. Right. And so your thing about police really struck me because I do work on public schools, and you actually have the exact same kind of oh, well, let schools do it, right? I mean, this, right. this right. It's actually yeah. amazing to me. When you were talking about cops, how much principals, especially, but also teachers, but especially principals, with some of the exact same things, mm -hmm. like, what the hell am I going to do? Yeah. Like, I keep getting more and more demands to like fix this. Absolutely. Thing. And similarly, with cops arresting, with with uh, schools, let's get them into college, right? And so the idea mm. is, we have all these problems. Uh, we'll solve them by getting them into college, right? Like that's right. this is what we right. know how to do, right? We know how to get people into college, or at least we, at least we're trying to do that, right? And so, um, and so I think, what I guess what I'm interested in is, to the extent you can think about this kind of sociologically, like, how how do we change that on both the, both the level of a cop, like when a cop himself is he able, sort of institutionally or herself able institutionally, or organizationally, to expand the toolkit beyond arrests, um, and then also on a more national level. Like, can we sort of broaden our toolkit beyond cops, right? Can we think of, a, or local level or whatever, are there other sort of tools available to us to solve these problems? Or have we become so habituated to cops that we just think this is the way to do it, and then the cops themselves become habituated to arrest, arrest, arrest. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think that, I mean, I, I, I it's interesting. So I see like the development of that kind of cultural toolkit that these cops have in terms of I've got to solve, I've got to deal with this nail with this hammer, right? I have to see this through the lens of what can my what can my handcuffs do for you today, right? Can they can they can they put you help you get into a shelter? Can they help they, you clear your head? Are they going to sober you up? Are they going to make you rethink your decisions? Um, I think that that kind of way of viewing the world through the lens of what are my handcuffs going to do for you today, I mean, it, it's, that for me, we have to start with like there's a level of kind of institutional failure that that is being kind of cultivated in. But like that doesn't need, that, the only way to kind of change that kind of cultural toolkit, that way of seeing the world is to, I mean, I imagine it would change, say, if we had frontline social workers on the street making that first contact. I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that like that's going to make officers think about their own job in a very different way, right? So when there's somebody else doing the kind of supportive helping profession kind of work, the cop can't help, I'm hoping, can't help but, you know, kind of rethink his or her daily mandates, right? That it's, it's a matter of, yeah, it really comes down to a matter of, well, there's nobody else doing this, right? There's nobody, it's a, it's a and I think it's, it's similar with, with teachers, right? Um, you know, it's similar in the sense that like, well, I've got to deal with the fact that this kid's not eating, right? Um, even though it's, it's not part of the things I'm supposed to do, um, precisely because 
there is no other frontline street level bureaucrat who's dealing with the fact that your student hasn't eaten. And so I think that like, I mean, I don't know, you're sitting next to my mom who's a school teacher. Um, so I think, I think she, would, she would probably say, look, if there was somebody out there that was not a teacher making sure that this child ate, like I could re vastly rethink my curriculum and the pedagogy of teaching in an in a urban, poor performing school. Like we could, we could actually think about um, school stuff, right? The same way that I think police could think about what I think are police stuff of like stopping crime, right? Rather than like getting somebody sobering up, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, across the state, the homeless problem has made the headlines in Long Beach and San Diego back in the 70s former governor and mayor. Uh, and they've both been deemed successful. In, in your research, did you come across uh, any, any instances where you thought maybe you could in, in, in terms of uh, in terms of which of their which well, of their policies? You know, they in their words cleaned up their cities. Right. And, uh, <laughs> these are these are scary words here. They said a lot to skid road. Right. Yeah. And, and well, oftentimes. Yeah. No detail. I mean how did they do it to be considered successful? Right. And this is this has been really this has been really hard. I mean, I know, right? So I described this kind of 2006 influx of cops. Um, I mean, if 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 you saw Skid Row in 2005 and you saw Skid Row in 2007, you would see a very different place. Um, you know, in 2005, you're seeing more tents, right? You're seeing dumpster fires at night. You're seeing tons of people living on the sidewalk. In 2007, after you've got police coming through like 15 deep in phalanxes with zip ties, just zip tying everybody and loading them up. Um, after that, if you don't see that and then you go and you see the street and it's now power washed, there's nobody sleeping there, right? There's no one with clear, you know, mental health issues, you know, publicly, you know, visible the way they were. I mean, it's easy to say it was a success. Like we've dealt with homelessness, we've we've solved homelessness, right? But I think, but well, no, yeah, right. So, so some things have changed now that it, it looks closer and closer to what it used to look like. So I don't, I don't, I mean, I guess my response is I think that those successes came from like clearing bodies out of the public landscape. And I think that in LA, like we, many of us saw, not us, many people saw this, you know, that 2006 move as like, as a success. Um, in your discussions with the city council members here, did any of them talk about Long Beach or San Diego? Or? I mean, they, they most often talk about those other cities really disparagingly um, in the sense that they are giving people bus tickets, yeah. right, and, and putting them onto buses. You know, Las Vegas is, is really bad at this and giving people bus tickets and saying, putting them on the gray, Greyhound, you know, which is, you know, three blocks away from Skid Row and saying, you know, go to Skid Row or, or you know, dumping, right? There's been this big, you know, these big dumping scandals, right, where hospitals um, all around the county um, and, and from beyond the county have been putting people into taxi cabs, right, in, in, in like their hospital gowns, um, damn near like IV, mm -hmm sticking out of their arm and, you know, sending the ta 
taxi down to to Skid Row shelters. Um, so a lot of the talk about other cities is about you know they're sending us like you know all these problems that we have to deal with, which which again comes back to what happens when you concentrate all these services. Well, it becomes a magnet for yeah, it becomes a destination for for a lot of folks, which is both good and bad, right? It's like something happens in your life. I mean, I, I you know I met a lot of people who who guards prison guards right as they were getting out of prison they were like I don't know what to do and the guards were like oh go down to Skid Row you know like you can at least find a roof over your head and get a free meal I met a lot of of women who were escaping domestic violence situations that like they just knew that like there was this place Skid Row where I can go and I will be taken care of Um, so I mean yeah so there are benefits about kind of creating that beacon but at the same time it makes places like Long Beach and San Diego also see that beacon and want to want to send people there is there something special about how LA does social control through police? I'm thinking of both the practices. Um, <laughs> I'm asking if there's something special about how LA does social control through its police and the practices that you're describing mm-hmm. here kind of reminded me of um, gang injunctions, which are also mm-hmm. um, seem to be a very particularly LA and sophisticated way of yeah. trying to um, manage whole communities and you know modify behavior through some mm-hmm. really dubious kinds of practices. And I was just wondering, is that something, I mean, do you feel like the way LA does it is different from other cities? Like it has a different vision of the role of the police? Yeah, so increasingly the rest of the country is coming to look like L.A. So L.A. in terms of policing has really been seen, unfortunately, as like the innovation leader in like how to deal and how to police poor people better. Um, So, right... And, and actually, what's going on in Skid Row has become this national model, right? So as our former chief, Bill Bratton, has gone back to New York and now is doing his you know, multi-million dollar consulting gig, he's now taking this model to other cities to show them how to police um, you know, disadvantaged neighborhoods better. And what we're actually now seeing, so Venice um, kind of picked up the Skid Row model, Bill Rosendahl even saying he was directly inspired by what was going on in Skid Row, um, instituted a similarly kind of therapeutic policing um, model toward um, RV dwellers who were living along the streets um, of Venice, right? So passing new laws, they say, you know, no vehicles over seven feet or like longer than seven feet, um, but you can like escape this by submitting to some kinds of services, right? So kind of doing doing this kind of course of ultimatum. And what we're often seeing um, across the country are the police, just like in Skid Row, pairing with these um, privately run social service organizations. So, so what they are doing in Skid Row, and now they're doing more often, is they're creating these programs, the police and um, organizations where if you get a ticket, um, you can waive your $200 fee for the crosswalk violation by like doing manual labor, say in like a in, the, in a homeless shelter, or by enrolling in a program. And so officers uh, in Skid Row are literally standing outside of these programs, and as like people come out, they're giving them a ticket, 
And they're saying, oh, no, no, but you don't actually have to pay that. You just go back into the services where you belong and, you know, stay in there. And if you stay in there long enough, like, that will be waived. You won't have a ticket on your record. And so now a lot of cities are developing um, this new form of policing where a ticket becomes essentially like de facto intake process into social services. So officers are going out ticketing people, and they see it um, as... Right, frontline social service work. That it's no longer a ticket, right? It's no longer my handcuffs. Now this is like the shoot and ladder, like into, um, um, into yeah, it's a voucher essentially into into social services. And so yeah, so a lot of cities. Long answer, sorry. A lot, a lot of cities have been have been taking this up, using LA as this kind of like pristine model of it. We got a question over here. Um, this is a leading question, but um, please. How much do you think that race is a factor um, in the you know heavy-duty policing um, that took place on Skid Row, especially considering that I'd say ninety percent of the residents are not just people of color but African American. Seventy-five, yeah. It feels like ninety. Yeah, yeah. Just what, but yeah. Um, and it's a lot. I was just trying to say it's a lot. <laughs> do you? think that this would have played out in the same way if we're talking about a community in any other city or any other uh, place that didn't have such a high concentration, particularly African Americans. I, mean, I, th- I think there's a relationship between what we're seeing with the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. movement and what people are, are challenging around police abuse uh, based on the fact that, you know, uh, based on race. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I know you talk about it in your book, but I think race has has a ton to do with this. I mean, I think race has a ton to do with. I think that um, right that that policymakers, police officers, up and down the ranks, come ready made come with these ready made tropes of black people choosing to be poor, right? We have tropes of the the welfare mother who's choosing to have lots and lots more kids so that she can collect more checks, right? Which is like the most idiotic and insane um, kind of narrative we can can hold on to. Um, But these are racialized, right? When we think about, you know, welfare mothers choosing to be poor, this is a black woman, right? In the kind of collective imagination um, um, of America. And also if we look historically about when we have as a country and when the city of L.A. has decided to be less punitive and more compassionate towards Skid Row's population. And it was typically when um, the population grew in terms of being white and being women and being children. Because these are, right... A more sympathetic group that we need to help, um, and when Skid Row becomes black and brown, it becomes a place that is is thought of as more dangerous, as more criminal, um, as more pathologically um, inclined towards right these these terrible behaviors. And so, I mean, I think race, you know, is is a, is a huge part of it. It's absolutely a part of it. Um, maybe you and then and you. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
the voucher thing just seems like indentured servitude. And I think it's very dangerous when we have a notion of a citizen as a customer. We really need to maintain our right position as citizens and not become customers. Otherwise, capitalism is casino and the house always wins. And so it's very dangerous whenever you're receiving social services and somebody is referring to you as a customer. And that's your civil rights moment right there. Mm. It's when you tell them you don't want to be a customer anymore. You want to be a citizen. You want to be an American citizen. Mm -hmm. And there are poll numbers now showing that more Americans want a socialist agenda, want mm. housing platforms, want these initiatives. Want our, our, a voting population that's ready, that's ready to do this work. And even the idea of a basic citizen income, given the job numbers are, the possibility of just going to find a job, that is not a statistical reality in America anymore. And American citizens across the country are realizing that. That's what all this anger is with Bernie and Trump. It is the idea that we're not living in a type of capitalism that is, uh, it, we, are in, we are in need of redefinition. And I really, I applaud your work. You know, I just think there's basic ideas that if we're all aware that we don't want to be customers, we want to be American citizens. And we want to have certain safeguards. We have rights to those safeguards. We're not customers. Because if we're customers, that's always in the You know, and, um, you know, I really appreciate the work you're doing in spreading awareness in the Women's Center. You know, because, you know, and we can make this happen. This is a time in America we want socialism. The polling numbers say Americans want this. So don't think, you know, we don't have agency right now. We've created a revolution in America. Let's take the hand and let's get this work done because we're smart people and good people and, and we can put this into existence and we can hold the feet to the fire. You know, there's nothing Hillary wants more than a legacy better than Obama. She's a competitive girl. And if we tell her what that is, if America progresses and tell telling her what that is, she'll do it. So let's, you know, let's have hope, and let's get it done, because we can get these people off the street. Now's the time. Now it's turn. And now, you know, the information and the will allow that. And if each one of us even tries to think of ourselves not as a customer, but as a citizen, people will listen. I think, it's well, I think that's well said, yeah. I mean, we need to rethink what being a citizen means, right? Like, what are, what are I don't know, I want to think about what am I do as a citizen? Like, what kind of a social safety net um, am I entitled to uh, as, as an American? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, thank you. You know, you talk about race. In the 1930s, poor people were depicted in photographs as white people. Yes, yes. And, and, and what came out of that was a great social... Back yeah. to getting care of our people. When Ronald Reagan came along, he turned poor people into the welfare queen, black lady, ten kids driving a Cadillac by states right. that you can't buy. Right. Right. And, and so we changed how we thought about poor people. He closed all the mental institutions, he put them out on the street, he funded everything. And I think what people, if they really want to start making a change in that, is to remind people that those homeless people, whether they're mentally ill, whether they're just down on the luck, addiction, whatever, they are just as much a part of our community as everyone else is. They are our neighbors, and they can be our friends. And we just, if we look at them as our neighbors and our brothers and sisters, we'll start taking care of them because it's our social obligation. Incredibly well said, but this, I mean, this, this, this photography campaign. I'm the the photographer is slipping my mind right now. But like this is, I mean, this is huge. Like this is these are these kind of visual representations of. They're about to yeah, do one in, yeah. um, in the bridge in City Hall. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they're taking they're taking applications now. Dorothea Lang was the 
Yes, 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 absolutely. Statistically, homeless people have a higher level of education than non-homeless people. So usually these homeless people that you're serving have more college and postgraduate work than the population of others. Are, are you saying don't go to college? <laughs> <laughs> Did you look at um, did you look at the the um, vacancy rate here of uh, hmm. real estate vacancy rate as a factor? Because I know people can't get apartments no matter what right. they make. Right. So if yeah. Poor, yeah. forget about it. Or yeah. if you ever had an eviction, try to compete against somebody who hasn't. Right. Um, how does that play? Into yeah, it? no, I'm, I'm, you know. Why people say that the Utah program won't work? You know, yeah. Six hundred dollars. I don't know if that translates to LA property value. <laughs> that's, that's where a lot of I mean, the Salt Lake City program worked exceptionally well. Yeah, yeah. But the question is like whether or not LA actually has the space to give homeless people apartments. Yeah, whether it has the space. I mean. Yeah, whether it has a space. I mean, whether it has a space also is a political will question too, right? You know, like when you've got the vaccine for you know something that is ailing us, you know, do you complain that you don't have enough syringes? No, you make the syringes, right? Like it's it's kind of what you do. But I mean, I think, and I'm glad that you know Matt Desmond has this this new this new book, Evicted, come out where he's really kind of um, pointing out the role that housing and affordable housing and Unaffordable housing um, has in in perpetuating poverty, perpetuating intergenerational uh, poverty and inequality. And I mean, I do think right. So once we get, I think this this speaks right directly to the kind of conditions that take people to Skid Row. Right, when you're paying seventy five percent half of your income, you know, to your rent, um, what happens when you know an unfortunate circumstance pops up? What happens when you're hospitalized? What happens when you know a family member gets sick? Like all of a sudden it's, you know, the choices you have to make become become pretty stark, right? But I think that, you know, this is a huge part. I mean, the affordable housing um, um, aspect of this thing, I think, is, is one that we're not often talking about. I, and I actually don't talk about it enough in this book. Um, but it sounds like at least now um, folks are beginning to think about housing in a, in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I think one measure would be less people depending on Skid Row and its services for daily survival in like a real meaningful way, right? Not in the way of like, oh, we cleared out all the people. There's less people depending on these services, but in in a real way that it's like this this becomes less of a destination, right? Getting to a point where there are fewer people seeking out the beacon of concentrated services. Um, That's why you don't want to be a customer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess that that for me is, I guess, my best answer to that. Um, yeah, like what, what is what is success? Um, services that actually a, a, an environment that is going to have to include police that you know 
net is doing more good than harm. I think we can measure that in a few different ways. How long an individual is is in a particular circumstance. Uh, how long it takes for somebody to get into housing. Um, I don't know. Those I, I guess those things are measurable. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? <laughs> what, what do you think would be a good, uh, a successful vision? Of? I, I mean, this, I, mean I, I think that this whole conversation and your book in particular shows that you're asking that question. You know? It's a really difficult question to answer, but um, I don't think there's a one way to make social problems go away. Right? And so, I mean, for me, it's a question of the continuation of Skid Row as a, as a place. And if you want that to exist, there's a question about the role of cos- the concentration of services, right. poverty, and whether or not you want to move away from the bottom of that. And so that's, you talked a little bit about that. Yeah. So yeah. for me, that's the, the, the issue that I think is kind of fascinating is whether or not you have all these services in one place that helping or is that hurting? Right. And disperse that, is that actually, does that make it any better? So for me, it's about the geographic and spatial distribution. Yeah. So I think that's a sort of fascinating mm. question. Yeah. So I don't know what this has to look like. If this guy is around, it's not the answer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Man, you're you're a smarter dude than I am, Anthony. So <laughs> <laughs> help me out. Help me out. Cool. Um, uh, okay. Yes, okay. please. Well, I tried very hard to help a young woman uh, get into housing. She was homeless, and she liked to sort of sit on the boardwalk and sing and the little dog and get played uh, that way. But um, anyway, so I got her to go down to the St. Joseph's in Venice. Mm-hmm. They said they only take the first seven, so I said, sleep outside the door and, and get there in line. The first one in line at 6 a.m. So she went through that. She had contact with a social service person, and they gave her, uh, they had an apartment available for her and everything. And I said, well, did you take the apartment? She said no, because they had rules against drugs. She was very much into marijuana and also against pets. Mm-hmm. So I think when, when they have this affordable housing, they, they should be a little more lenient with people. Yeah, so this, so, so this, this uh, it's not new, but this kind of what is now an alternative model, right, of housing first, harm reduction, permanent supportive housing is, is a lot more, I don't know, I, I think feel like lenient has kind of a negative connotation, but they are more, um, uh, they, they're, they're more willing to meet people where they are, right, in, in terms of whatever they're going through. Uh, but I think that, yeah, that, that's absolutely important. But you also, you also point out, you know, right, we only take the first seven, right, which, which you, the first seven people who get here, you can have a roof over your head. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things I, I, I talk about some in the book is how that logistical problem that people face comes to structure your daily life, right? So for a lot of the people that I met, um, the missions, to get a bed at the mission, um, they open their door and they select like the first, sometimes it's 20, sometimes it's 15, it depends on what their capacity is, uh, given programming and whatnot. And it's like first come, first serve, you're either in or you're out, right? So people start lining up at like 3.30 in the afternoon, um, right, to, to, to wait their two hours for the doors to open up. I mean, you can imagine, right, if your life calls on you to start queuing up outside of a place to have a roof over your head by 3.30, I know for some people they couldn't come to the, we ran a free legal clinic um, to to help waive their tickets. A lot of people couldn't come to our free legal clinic to waive their tickets because they needed to line up at 3.30. 
to get a bed, right? So now you have to start weighing things. Do I stick with the $174 fine that turns into $500 or do I have a roof over my head? Do I take that part-time job at that warehouse sweeping the floor that's gonna go until 6 p.m. or do I have a roof over my head, right? So I think these kind of small little, I mean, they're not mundane, but but potentially mundane decisions, right, of what I'm going to do for these two hours in my day, all of a sudden become incredibly profound decisions that restructure people's lives, right, when you're kind of toiling, toiling at the bottom. So that's a really, yeah, that's, I feel like that's a pretty common and terrible experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we have time for one more question. So back then? Oh, is there someone who hasn't asked a question yet? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. When you go outside of Los Angeles, I mean, so so I I do know and, and knowing a few folks who are involved in tent cities moving around. So I will say one, a lot of those um, encampments are responses to policing, a lot of the policing that's going on in Skid Row and now in Venice, right? So I, I know a lot of people who live in those encampments and then travel in for a, a free meal in Skid Row and then get the hell out of Skid Row as fast as possible before, you know, before a cop puts them against a wall. Um, and in terms of, I mean, you know, I, I, for me, I think it just really comes down to like, if we're serious about, quote, bringing people inside, um, then, then we have to find ways to, to support people, um, you know, su- support folks and meet them where they're at. I mean, I do think in this, in this situation, right, this, this, you know, harm reduction housing first model is, is, is a good one and it's proven to be a good one. Well, with that, thank you guys so much for your thoughtful question. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.